all the things that you need to know about the COVID, about pandemic, and what is Patagon. Anyway, hi and welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Roy Yosevich, and in this channel I host and speak with the most interesting and influential people and scholars from all around the world to discuss science, philosophy, theology, artificial intelligence, and creativity. If this is your first time on this channel, please consider subscribing and, and hit the bell button. And my guest today is Professor John Tregoning from, uh, I just wrote it, from the Imperial College in London. Uh, John Tregoning is an associate professor in respiratory infectious in the Department of Infectious Diseases at Imperial College in London. And most recently, he published this great book, Infectious Patagon and How They Infect Us. So I, I can't read it because it's upside down. Patagon and how we fight them. So Professor Tregoning, thank you so much for coming. How are you today? Very good, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to talk to you. Okay, so like I said before, I have a problem with you since your research about disease and pandemics and all the other things is extremely important, is very interesting, and of course it's relevant. But your meta research about uh, how you published your book, how you published your, uh, uh, your book, and how do you become better in academia might be even more uh, relevant to my audience. So with your permission, we will start with the first and go to the second, okay? So first, this is a great book. And uh, one of the things that you wrote about your book that you mentioned the word serendipity because you are a professor of infectious diseases. And I think that being in the COVID area, being a professor at, uh, in uh, infectious diseases is like, sorry for saying it, it's like a dream come true, yes? <laughs> That's an interesting question. It certainly, yeah, it's changed the way, it, 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 well, no, it, <laughs> it's really hard to explain. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It sort of changed, some of it has changed the way we've thought about. So some of it is like, this is what we expected to happen. This is how we thought things would happen. And then some of it is like, well, that's not what I thought would happen. That has changed. So it's very, in, it is interesting, but there's that sort of curse about may you live in interesting times where actually when you are in the thick of it and it is quite exhausting, but uh, yeah, fascinating, but exhausting. So I, I just want to mention one thing that uh, may you live in interesting time, consider a curse in Chinese uh, le literature or in Chinese tradition. So interesting is only uh, nice in retrospect, in retrospective, not during what you did. So let's start and, and dive in to the science. I want, I, I, I want to, uh, to read out loud a quote from your book, and I think that this will be the best place to start. A disease is not the same thing as the thing, no, it's not the same thing as the thing that causes it. Diseases refers to symptoms. So COVID-19, which we know as the COVID virus, is <laughs> the uncatchy name for disease caused by similarity, uncatchy SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what do we need to know about the distinction between diseases and the things that causes diseases? This is just like, phenotype and genotype or something else it, it's something more i think 
if we think about the pathogen, which is the agent that caught the infectious agent, so it could be a virus, it could be a bacteria. If we're thinking about uh, SARS-CoV-2, it's a virus. That agent, you can be exposed to that agent and not get sick, or you can have the agent, you can have the virus, it can replicate maybe in your nose and make you mildly unwell. It's only when the it stacks so that the virus may be more virulent, your immune system may be compromised in a way, or your lungs are compromised in a way that you get these sort of severe disease. And that's why I think going back to your saying, you know, living through this interesting time, is you see this whole spectrum of disease in lots of different people. And because we're measuring who's getting infected, we're seeing infection. So people with detectable virus everywhere, but we're not seeing sick people everywhere. And that's changing with the vaccines as well. So people are still maybe getting infected, but they're not getting as severe sick. So you've got these kind of two things separating between agents that can make you unwell if you're, if you're that way sort of predisposed versus the kind of the disease that can, that can come. And, and just one final bit on that, the, the disease actually can be quite similar between different pathogens. So if you get a bad flu infection into your lung or a bad uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection into your lung, you'll have a similar kind of um, symptoms. You'll present with difficulty to breathe, pneumonia. So there, there's similarities in the kind of body's response, especially when it's things are going wrong, depending regardless of the virus. Okay, so let's say that I'm having a PCR test, and according to the PCR to the PCR test, I'm COVID positive. So, but I have no symptom whatsoever. Okay, and this is what we call in Israel uh, or, or in the world uh, non-symptom. We, we call it asymptomatic uh, patients. So they may they can uh, infect other people but they don't get the symptoms. They don't get the, hard, uh, the, the cold, the flu, you know, the difficulty in breathing. But what science know about what distinguish people be between getting the symptoms and not getting the symptoms? Is it pure luck or something inherent different in their immune system, in their biology that make them uh, uh, immune to the symptoms of the disease? So there'll be... I guess it's like a, a, maybe like a computer, it's like a gating thing. There are multiple gates through which th things have to go in order to, for the disease to happen. So um, the first is probably the amount of virus you breathe in. So if you breathe in one, one tiny virus particle, you're less likely to get sick than if you breathe in 100,000. So that's the, the dose is then important. The second thing is might be how to, uh, like the time of day. So we know that the immune system is more active at different times. Of the, the circadian rhythm, it changes. So it may be the time of day that you're exposed or how tired you are or how dry the mucus in your nose is. So there's lots of kind of barriers and the virus has to kind of overcome all of those barriers. So we know things that will tend to predispose people. So if you have... Um, COPD, so the condition that follows um, smoking throughout your life. So if you've damaged your lungs through um, smoking, you're more likely to get sick. Or if you have diabetes, you're more likely to get sick or a heart condition. So we know things that may predispose people to get more sick and age, age seems to be the major driving factor. So those things, all of those things kind of add up. And it's, I don't think what we don't have is enough knowledge to be able to say, if we took me, 
and just measured all of those bits and pieces and put them into an algorithm, we could say, this is how sick you'll get. And that's that's the kind of, you know, that's a, probably quite a long way in the future, but that'll be a fascinating thing to be able to do, just to kind of put all these variables in and say, this is but how sick it, you'll get. But, 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 but this is basically a chaos theory. It's a complex dynamic systems that have many, many parameters. And you said it for yourself. You said it even the time of the day. So let me get it straight because it is fascinating. And this is the first time that I hear this. So I might get uh, the virus at, I don't know, 10 a.m. where when I'm fully alert and, I'm, I, and I am not tired and I eat properly. And then my body like going to uh, not let the virus go into the gate. And then even though I will get the virus later at 10 p.m., yes, when I'm very tired, the fact that the, that the initial encounter with the virus were, when, was when I was very healthy means that I developed like a, a natural vaccine. I think it's probably more just it has repeated, it's repeated attacks against the same thing. And if, you, if the attack in the morning bounces off, it doesn't necessarily mean that the attack in the evening will, will also fail. So I think it's it, the more, I, I think what it tells us in terms of exposure is the more exposures you have, the more likely you are to get infected. So that's where masks and the non-pharmaceutical interventions and good ventilation help because you're just reducing the number of chances that the virus gets to roll the dice and, and get into the body. Okay. But, but, but yeah, I think it, you're right. I think there is this sort of chaos chaos element to it there's so many variables that it is very hard to predict but i don't think but then coming back to the public health side if you everything we can do to put more barriers in the way is going to reduce the chance of disease so vaccines and good hygiene and good good underlying health all of those will help you in kind of swing the balance in your favor Okay, so let's move on to chapter four in your book, and it's microbiome. Now, I had on the show Professor Ravid Strausman from Weizmann uh, Institute in Israel, and he's a cancer researcher. And what they discovered that even that the microbiome, that the the germs in your, I don't know, in your stomach, has a great impact on what we called. Uh, cancer treatment. So, so please, uh, shortly, could you explain what microbiome is and how it affects your possibility or chances to get diseases in the context of the COVID? Of the, of the COVID? So the microbiome refers to all of the uh, mostly bacteria, let's, let's say bacteria. So microbiome refers to all of the bacteria that live on or inside your body. So you have bacteria on your skin, you have bacteria in your nose, you have, and but the majority of your bacteria live in your guts. So, um, and they help you digest food. They help you stopping getting secondary infections. They help, particularly metabolism, but they also seem to train your immune system. So it, if you count the number of cells of bacteria in your body, versus the number of cells you there's about the same number so we we're in some views we're like a, a massive taxi for bacteria rather than just a, a kind of human body yeah. um what do they do for covid i it, it, it's quite there does seem to be some 
correlation between maybe certain bacteria types in the gut and better immune health. And it's certainly if you have um, probably what's best known is the, the it's a bit like um, a, a jungle, the, 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 the lower the diversity, the less healthy the ecosystem. So the more different types of things. Again, again, have, the lower the diversity, the lower the diversity of the bacteria, the different kinds of bacteria in your gut, in your body. So the lower the diversity, the, the more probably the, the worse outcomes are. You want to have like a, a broad range of different things that can respond to different uh, outcomes. But it, it, it's still very early in our understanding of how these work. And they're, they're difficult studies to do and to do well because it's quite easy because there's bacteria everywhere. You know, there's bacteria on my coffee cup and, and it's quite and, and in my science for pets. And so it's quite easy to get contamination and kind of misunderstand things. So I, I haven't seen anything like a smoking gun, a thing that says this is the one, this is the single bug you need to be better. But it's it's more diversity, eating more healthily will will all add to that and, and kind of lead to better outcomes. From from what I understand, and I spoke with Ravid, it likes it it seems that the microbiome is like an explanation mechanism, but not a prediction mechanism, since there are so much many factors. Even what happens to you during a during birth and in, in the birth canal and, and the, the, the fact that you have a dog or you don't have a dog and your environment. So the microbiome is affected by so many factors that you cannot control. So it's like, like, a, like a unique fingerprint of the person and your ability to change it or to alter it in a specific manner, just like you said, is very limited nowadays. Am I correct? Yeah, and I think it can change, and it's quite fluid, you know, I think if you measure it at different times of the day, it changes. There was a, an amazing paper which linked, you know, coffee intake and the type of bread you eat, and there are so many factors in changing all of these things. So I think to make sustained changes in it, I think is very targeted changes, it is, is very difficult. I think where it has been really interesting is in this um, fecal microbiome transplant. So there are what we do know is that if you take a lot of antibiotics, you you kill a lot of the microbiome in your guts, and that can have uh, long-term effects and make you more susceptible to an, a bacterial infection. So if you can reseed it after the antibiotics, you then protect yourself against these secondary infections. So have, keeping it kind of relatively diverse seems to be healthy. By the way, and I think that many people say there is, there is a, a, a joke in Israel that uh, flu... Uh, you can cure it with an antibiotics in seven days, but if you don't take an, an, an antibiotics, it will go after one week. So basically what we say is that the natural immune system of the body is extremely efficient. And many people say that even in the context of the COVID, where people get the immune, people get the vaccine, the natural vaccine after being ill, after being sick, and they develop the vaccine, this vaccine is much more sustainable for different kinds of mutations. So is it true that the natural, uh, natural vaccine or the natural immune system will be better in certain aspects over the, over the, the Pfizer vaccine, for example? So, so I think the first, important thing is if we go back to our not understanding how who's going to get sick 
is that if you're saying it, the, the in, infection with the virus, you are rolling a massive dice of of because you might get sick. So you know that infection could very easily you may have a genetic susceptibility that you didn't know about and it could put you in hospital. So that's a very high risk strategy. The second thing is the viruses make anti-immune factors. So they, the way that viruses infect you is by turning off your immune system. And we think that some viruses like coronaviruses actually dampen the immune memory. So they have, they make a protein that targets the immune memory and basically shuts it down, makes your memory less good. So on those levels, natural infection is probably less effective because you've got the high risk and you've got the kind of a, a rapidly diminishing response. What the vaccines do is that they give you the immune memory without ever being exposed to the pathogen. So you never get sick and you might get you know, the mild infection, but you're never going to get the severe disease. And the vaccines are protecting against severe disease. And I think they give you a stronger, more controlled response against infection. But in Israel, we see that we had like the first uh, shot of the vaccine and then the second and then the third, which were called the booster. And then we have now have a one week on, which is like the fifth or the fourth. I, I don't count yet the fourth version of the virus. So it might it, 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 it like we just tweet and it, we just tweet the very specific modification of the virus each time and each time the immune system, it's like, it, it like diffs and cops, less. Each time the virus become more and more sophisticated. So what about this? Isn't like, a, are we going to be the, the uh, like a, 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 another vaccine and another v- vaccine for, for the next 10 years? Or, or what do you think is going to happen? Yes, yeah, so that's, it is an interesting question. So with the vaccines and the boosters, so the, the three doses that one would have had in Israel, they're all the same thing. It's not, they've not changed the vaccine at all between those three. So it's, it was targeting the original strain that emerged in 2019. And it's, it's basically what, it, it, what happens is each time you get vaccinated, it pushes the amount of antibody up a level. So the first you're here, you have your second one, it goes to here, you have your third one, it goes up again. And that is it come again comes back to this that idea I was talking about about putting more gates in the way. The more antibody you have, it will soak up more of the virus. Even if the antibody is less efficient because the virus is changing, you, you are still soaking up most of it, and that will again reduce your risk of severe disease. The virus is evolving. Um, and that is natural virus because it's a so it um it's, an, it's what's called an RNA virus. So it's the genetic material in it is a bit more leaky. So when it, it's like you, if you photocopy a photocopy and you keep on copying it, make, instead of going back to the original, you make more and more copies, you get more and more errors in, in the document. So the viruses make more and more errors. The more people who are infected, there's more chances of these errors happening. And some of those errors, most of those errors will kill the virus. It'd be bad for the virus. A few of them are gonna give it a selective um, advantage. And what we don't know is what is dry, what's the selective pressure? Because we don't know whether if it did, so if it did emerge in Southern Africa where the vaccine coverage is low, it's probably emerged because people had previous exposure, natural immunity. So if vaccine coverage was universally high, 
there would be fewer viruses and few ch- fewer chances to mutate. Yes, but those viruses will can overcome the vaccine now because if all the people in Europe, in Israel, or most of the people in Europe and Israel or in the US have the vaccine, so any modification that will survive this stage means basically that it can survive the gates of the current vaccine. Am I correct? No, because it's not binary. It's, it's a... It's a continue like the, the the best graph i've seen about protection is like a basically a sort of s s shape but with very noisy intervals so some people are high some people are low and the vaccine is going to give you noisy protection it's not going to be binary protection so i think it will still give you protection and the more antibody you have even though they're suboptimal like having 10,000 suboptimal antibodies is better than having 1,000 suboptimal antibodies so that it will continue to give protection. What may be required is new, like a bit like with flu, where the virus does change season on season, we may get to a point where we do need seasonal targeted boosters against this virus. But we've, we just honestly don't know at this point because there's not been a, I mean, there are endemic coronaviruses. There's like human coronaviruses out there that, that do circulate all the time and cause kind of, colds and things so we don't i don't think we know what is required next i think it's prudent to look into making or testing new vaccines against the new strains as as an insurance policy as uh, vaccine immunity went okay so with your permission let me go to another quote from your book uh, which is why infections have coexisted with human throughout our revolution Pandemics are a feature of civilization, okay? And the word pandemic means uh, all people, yes? People need to believe in close enough proximity to allow the infection to spread within communities and they have good enough contact between communities to spread it more broadly. And we have seen it, I think, vividly during the COVID pandemic where we started in China. And then after two or three months, it spread throughout Europe, Israel, and the US. So are we, in, in a way, if we take the Spanish flu from like 100 years ago, our world today is much more connected. And therefore, the Spanish flu influence only in certain borders. So basically, what you mean is that we are much more susceptible to pandemics and disaster like this as we get more and more connected as our world become flat as thomas friedman uh, put it yes i think the risk of the spread is is higher but the tools that we have to deal with them are better i think that if both things are developing at the same time the sort of uh you know this matt ridley's idea about the spreading of ideas and how quickly ideas spread what if you compare back to 1918 We didn't know that influenza was caused by a virus. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't have the supportive like ICU. We didn't have this, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like the steroid drugs that are very useful in the kind of severe diseases. So the, the knowledge has increased at the same time as the kind of human population kind of increase in number. But so yes, in general, we are at greater risk because of the interconnectivity.
and we didn't have a test state, which was Israel, <laughs> that like it's like a giant lab experiment, never never been conducted before. It was like a, a, a test a state that Pfizer said, okay, let's test let's test the vaccine on the people of Israel. So it I think well, that it gave not, us a lot of information. No, I I mean the vaccine was tested in all of the vaccines had a massive phase three efficacy style uh, trial before they went into the country. So they were tested globally for safety and protection before they were then licensed into different countries. So I, I don't, I, 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 I hope I, I, by being an early adopter, Israel then generated more, more of the early data, but the test happened. I, 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 yeah, I don't like the phrase test state. I don't think that's a, a fair description. I think. Okay. 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 I'm sorry. No, 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 it's fine. I, it's, it, yeah, sometimes these things sound I'm from Israel, so you know, I, I, I just want to waste to my country. <laughs> this is basically it. Okay, but you know, there is a chapter from your book, and this chapter says, which leads to the big questions. And it says, why don't we get sick all the time? And this is a very important question because if you get all if you get the bacteria, if you get the disease, if you get the viruses from the air, and each breath of air it's approximately half liter of air, how come that we don't get sick all the time? This is a very important question. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. I, I, we've done some research where we were looking at the number of we we swabbed uh, two hundred children and measured viral infections in them uh, and. 20% of them had what would be deter what would be called a viral pathogen, um, but they weren't sick. So there, there are these viruses and bacteria out there all the time. And I think it speaks to how good our defenses are in protecting us, but also how um, well evolved, and that's a bit of a clunky phrase, but how the viruses have evolved to infectious, the, the kind of things they do to get past these barriers. And when you sort of look at some of the, microbiology research where people examine single proteins in bacteria and show that the single protein has all these different functions just to help the bacteria win win in its battle it, it's it's a remarkable kind of uh, um evolutionary arms race the the i think i talk about the image of the red queen hypothesis in alice in wonderland where they're both running at the same speed but nothing changes and it, i think it's some of that it is yeah it um and we don't have the answer. And I think that is what drives my lab's research is to think about, well, what is it that happens in those times when you do get infected? Because, because it, it's, when you think about it, it it's like, a, it, it's, it's so unprobabilistic. The probability of not getting sick is so low that how come? It, it's like a, a, a living miracle. So I, I want to go, you, uh, from my perspective, represent the, the academia, the university. And many people say, listen, we invest tremendous amount of money in academia, NSF, ISF, Horizon, giants of billions of dollars in euros. And when we needed a straight answer from academia and all the academia joined together to give us something, the answer wasn't there. And we got the answer from 
Pfizer, which not part of the academia. It's it's not it. So my question, and I speak, I spoke on on the channel with several biologists that mentioned this very thing that how come we didn't get the answer or or, or uh, so do we do we need to rethink our biology and microbiology department after the pandemic that we didn't get as the as the public as government what we needed them after so so many years of investing tons of money so, so I'll, I'll come back with a straight no on that. I think that is a, that's a misinterpretation of what happened. I'll give you a number. Okay, why big no? So the big no, so let me go through a number of examples why I think the academic contribution to the COVID pandemic is enormous. The first is, uh, if we look at the Moderna vaccine, the Moderna vaccine uses what was called a pre-fusion stabilized form of spike. So the spike protein, that's the bit of the virus that the virus uses to get into the, our cells and the thing that the vaccine targets is basically like a spring up umbrella. It has, a, it has a compact form that it lives in on the virus and then the open form that it uses to get into cells. That compact pre-fusion, the form before it opens up is the more immunogenic, is the one that you want to get protection against. Understanding that knowledge came from a group at NIH by Barney Graham and um, Jason McClellan studying as an academic group a different virus and their knowledge, their 20 years of research and knowledge went into the design of the, of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So without that academic group, we wouldn't have the Moderna vaccine. The second part of the Pfizer vaccine was that it was developed by, um, it, it has, it's, an MR, it's made of mRNA and mRNA, when you look at, uh, when your cells see it, says this is, this is foreign. This is, uh, and mo normally your body would say, because this is foreign, like because it, it thinks it's an infection, would stop the mRNA being turned into proteins. So, so how I, so I need to drill down this. Basically, mRNA encodes the proteins. Your body would turn that off. There was a group called uh, Kathy Carrico, who works at um, BioNTech now, spent 20 years as an academic researching how to trick the body into making mRNA vaccines. So the two key bits of academic, or two key bits of underpinning knowledge into the mRNA vaccines came out of academic research. And both of them were kind of quite somewhat niche and wouldn't have been funded in industry. I mean, the third one, if you look at the AstraZeneca vaccine, that is all built out of research done at Oxford University over a 20 year time span. So all of this knowledge, what happened in the last year was the, was the tip of the, was basically the tip of the spear of 20 years of research. And the 20 years of research came from academia. So without that open blue, sci blue sky science space, we wouldn't have the knowledge to build the things that we need in the last two years. So I think, no, academia can't make a factory where you make vaccines, but yes, they can make the knowledge that then feeds into the into the factory at the end. Okay, the so with your permission, because I think and from from and from the passions that I get from you, this is an important question, and let me tackle this from another perspective with your permission, and and the other perspective is, no vaccine and no scientific progress progress is possible 
without research, without science. No, no question whatsoever. Now, the, the only question is, what is the best or the most efficient platform for specific scientific progress? In the field of AI, nowadays, it is the big tech. All the big research is conducted in the big tech, or most of the big research is conducted in the big tech. In the area of the transistor, it was Bell Laboratories, okay? The BJT, the transistor, the diode, all the other things were conducted not in the university. It was conducted by great experts, great scholars, great professors, but not in the platform of the university, okay? But wasn't, now, but wasn't just to inject, wasn't Bell Labs run like an academic department, but it didn't have a specific- Bell Lab run like academic department and Google research run like academic department and Facebook research run like academic department mm. very well, but, in, uh, but there is, there is something different because Google fund itself and Facebook fund itself. So it is extremely important to get the distinction. Now we say, okay, we need basic science and basic science is unprofitable, okay? Because you just aim to a very long, very far away target and then you try and maybe you get it and maybe you don't. So maybe, we want academia to focus mainly on basic science, just like you said, like two, 20 years research that eventually leads to what we need. And of course, without Maxwell, Maxwell uh, equation of uh, electrodynamics, we wouldn't have anything. It is important. We need the academia, but the platform that we call academia, universities, grants, etc., is is not efficient in delivering things to the door, to delivering the next vaccine, to delivering something that is working. What and about no, this perspective? And no, I agree. I don't. I don't. I think academia has. To, I think it's an ecosystem. You can't. You can't have industry without academia. The, the, the two things. And, and so I think that there's this kind of a, there is a murky place in the middle of early phase one trials, but. Uh, to, to my mind, academia is about generating a number of ideas, many of which won't work, which so which so therefore it's the kind of it's almost like the 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 mutation that drives evolution. So you're having all these mutant ideas come up, most of them fail, but some of them will then feed into the industrial pipeline. The other thing I think academia does, which is really important, is that it trains the people to go into industry, it trains the people to go into policy. So we can use research as an educational tool. So at that point, you're then getting new ideas that may or not be important, but also you've trained somebody who can then go and be a scientist thinker in any number of different jobs. And I, I'm strongly, I, I, you know, I think what I do as a, uh, a supervisor is training scientists, not training academics. And, and I look at the kind of people who've been through my labs, they, they, one's a medical doctor, one works for the government, one works for a funder, one works for a science writer. So there's lots of different paths that I think the academic model then contributes as well. Ideas and people, I think, is what we generate. But I am a, I'm a professor of computer science. And as a computer science, many, many companies in the, in, in the industries says that learning to program in academia is not good because academics don't know how to really program something that works. So in, 
in other words, we train our students to become better scientists or better thinkers, but we don't train them, uh, we don't give them the proper tools and those proper tools are given to them in the companies and the corporates that they are working. And I would argue that this is similar in Pfizer, that if you, uh, that what you get when working in such a, a company like Teva or Pfizer, is different and in some aspect inherently different than what we get in the academia lab. So with your permission, let me ask you, uh, do you think that something in the model of training, in the model of syllabus, in the model of funding academia in, in your department should be changed after what we know after two years of the pandemics? Or would you say no? Just keep it the way it was. So, so in terms of training, and I think universities are moving there, is we are accepting that the knowledge of the world is in our mobile phones now. You don't have to learn the Krebs cycle off by, or, or you know, whatever it is. You don't have to learn that into your head anymore because you can look it up. But you do need to be learning critical thinking and experimental design and planning and those are the skills that I think in terms of the education is what we are doing both at a undergraduate and a postgraduate level. In terms of funding, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, of course, would argue for more funding. I want to tell, I want to tell, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More funding. The two of us. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's been fairly, I don't think, I don't think academic, academia failed in in the in the pandemic because i think across the board you've got the mod epidemiologists and the modelers and the vaccine people so i, I think it, it it by and large works um and i'm i, I don't know i i would i yeah I, I think it's a good return on investment yes because in the last chapter of your book you says and and you speak about you know uh, uh, the balance between companies and academia and what they should do. But we, with your permission, because we are, uh, it was extremely fascinating, but I want to move on to the second thing. And what we spoke, what we talked about so far was, you know, how academia infect or influence something that is relevant to the public. And you most recently published this book, uh, the, the books that we are talking about, Infectious, Pathagon, and now we fight them. And something very interesting uh, happened. You also wrote a column in Nature Careers, how I wrote a pop science book. Now, my, uh, and this is a extremely well-written, very funny, <laughs> very funny. And first of all, what is Nature Career? It's, it's, like of, it's like a nature article that you have there. But it so so nature uh, the journal has kind of two bits the the kind of the main journal has two bits of it has the kind of magazine-y, newspapery side of it which does the the articles and the careers advice as well as the scientific writing and I've been working with the team on the career side for for a, a number of years about writing different aspects of uh, being a of what it's like to be a scientist and how and and different challenges in academia and how to overcome them so. I was very lucky during the pandemic because I wrote um, through them, I wrote a weekly diary of what it was like to, to live as an academic through COVID. Um, and that was a lot of fun, but it was quite a challenge because I was writing like every week, you'd be writing one article 
editing the one from the week before and and thinking about the next one so it was a, it was a, a very different sort of uh, intellectual challenge to the normal job no but when what when you published in nature career it's not like published in nature so oh no. yes and well it comes apparently it, it appears it's cited on PubMed as a nature paper but it's not no it's not a, it's not a primary <laughs> it's not a primary research paper and it, it might it, be my only chance to go into <laughs> nature so exactly. this is why I'm asking okay <laughs> but it, it, I, we know that Faraday wrote the story of Kendall as addressed to youth. We know that the publisher of The Origin of Species told Darwin, make the book clearer. I want to address the public. But we know nowadays that, uh, that, uh, that scientific articles are written in a way that are inaccessible to anyone outside the realm. And this is causing, it's like, it's, it's a bad policy because we separate science from society. We separate science from the people. Most people who are not in the field or are not in academia have never, never accessed Google Scholar before. I know it's, it, 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 it's like mind blowing because we work with Scholar all the time. But n- just when I... became a graduate student, I knew that such a, such a website was exist. So, and I think that this is part of us to blame, the scientists, because we don't write clear enough. And I think that, and, and it is very, what I didn't like about your, about your title is this is a pop science book. The pop, because it is fun. It is full of anecdotes. It's funny. And, and why being fun, full of anecdotes and engaging means pop science book? Mm. So I, I, think, I, I think the scientific paper is a very specific tool. It's not, it's, and it is, it's a peer-to-peer tool, isn't it? It's not about engaging public. What I've always tried to do then is write a separate article As a lay companion piece that then explains the science in a way that you know my parents and my, my family could then understand and see so I, I don't I, I don't think it's possible to change the scientific paper in a way to make it more because because you're not you're not necess- you're trying to communicate in information to a, a different audience so I think what we have to do is get better at communicating to both audiences and also then to value the communication to a broader audience I you know I think if you take uh, the the drivers of the academic career are bring in money produce papers they're not about how well you communicate your science so it's it's something that we do on top of our day jobs rather than kind of as part of our day jobs yes and this is bad because it's like grants are not part of your papers now I wrote for a uh, for lay audience of four books which are Which I invested my time and my life in those books, and those book I th- both those books or part of them influence the lives of people much more than the papers that I've published in Google Scholars. And let me disagree with your permission because I you said you need to address two kinds of audience. You need to address the peer review, your your peer scientists that you know need to tell them, listen, this is what I done. this is what this is what the results are. Please continue from there. And this is how science builds, uh, one, one brick at a time. Okay, we, which is great. But 
I will argue that this is not the case. And we, we see in my discipline and in electrical engineering that nowadays people try to be more complex, more vague. Instead of taking very simple equation, they just fill some, some of them, fill the paper or fill the page with unnecessarily mathematics, you know, just to make sure that they, if the paper is un, is hard to understood, it must be very deep. And I will tell you even more that the tendency today, and you also know it, is to publish short and shorter papers because people don't have the time to read so much. And, and so in other words, what you describe is like the utopia. Okay, I need to tell you, okay, what I've published and why it is important and so you can move on. Yes, it's like a, a stick race. Uh, I don't know how you say it, like a, a pole race. But this is not the case. And many articles, many scientific articles are extremely hard to read. So what can we do to change it? You change it in your blog and I change it in my writings and I try to be you know, better in my writing. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Andy, Randy Pausch, you know, the, the, the distinguished professor from Cornell University, from Carnegie Mellon, who passed away from cancer. Uh, he was, he did it, his tenure, he, he, he did it sabbatical in Disney Imagineering. And after Disney Imagineering, after one year of Disney Imagineering, he, they had to, had to publish the paper. And the guy from Disney Imagineering said, listen, this paper is so pale add the picture and they added the picture before the abstract. They added the picture before and the people at the journal, well, are they allowed to do it? Why do we need to even say, are we allowed to add picture? Why can't we access, why can't we ease the access of our papers even to our peers? Because it's hard even to our peers to get our, uh, to read our papers. What do you think? No, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of bad science writing. I mean, but it's, it's hard, right? It's taken me 20 years to be able to write a science paper okay-ish. It's just, it's a skill. It's a, and you have to practice and you have to get good feedback. And I think you're right. I think the pressure, I think there's such a volume out there that it doesn't give the editors the chance to edit. I think if you go to some places, I had a very positive experience with a reviews article where the editor edited every line and, and worked with me. So I think when editors are acting in the old, in, in like a newspaper editor, you get a much better product than when you get an editor just acting as a gatekeeper in terms of the science. So I and think you get much better training. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can see what works. And if you get some feedback and say, you know, don't, don't just say the same word over and over again. I think there is a, and, and there's also this, I, I don't know if you see it, but in I feel sometimes people, like you say, obfuscate. They use complicated words where a simple word would do. And I think, like I just did. So I think, I, I think there's a bit in writing where it's just like, just say it was rather than, and so we saw about this thing. I was like, well, that's just not good writing. Yeah, hey, it's not used. It's like ac academia. It's like, we, I don't say I used, I say I utilized. And we don't say, eh, 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 eh. Uh, it was it was it was a passive and if you see you know S S Stephen King has some rules about good writing and Stephen King is a very good writer yes he's like the most read uh, author in the 20th century and basically 
I think all the things that he described as good writing are like in academia, are like in journal writing. And you see all this complex sentences, just a second, what we are trying to do, okay? I want to do this. And I, 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 I you know, add some humor, add some quotes, add some, you know, all the quotes and the anecdotes that you uh, add to your book are so important because they let me hold, it's like a hook to get the idea, to get the theoretical part. And it's extremely important. And we rarely see them in scientific writing. We see them only in the best scientific writing, but not in all of the scientific writing. So my question is, because you wrote a book about science, you said in one of the, in one of the tips that save many factual data, many anecdotes as, as you can, because they will spice up your writing and will be uh, important as well. So my question to you is, how do you save and file your anecdotes? Because we get like many anecdotes and, 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 and we read something that, wow, listen, this is good and this is good and this is good. But how do we save them in a way that we can restore them efficiently afterwards? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't, I, uh, yeah, I didn't have any system. There were just things, I think there were just things that made, I, I had enough of, there were either things that had made me laugh previously and I really remembered them, or I had enough of a stub that I could then search them on Google. So I think there was, my search terms are probably quite weird at the moment, like what's the most, you know, what's the longest tapeworm or what's the most, you know, how much, because I remember going to, so I remember going to talk about um, somebody doing human deliberate, a cholera challenge and he was talking about the volumes of fluid that came in I couldn't remember the exact number but I could then piece it together it was a bit of a kind of uh, detective work to just try and find the bits from my brain from earlier so maybe writing them down would have been better but I just kind of relied on my imperfect memory. Now another thing that you said that you had to write 90,000 uh, 90, words and you said okay 90,000 words meaning basically 3,000 words each week but when you had a, you have a diary, yes, like a, you kept track of the world that you, that you were writing each week. And most of the weeks, the total numbers of words were less than 3000. And which became that the, you know, the weekend became very, very intense. Now, in retrospective, what could you have done differently? And what tip could you give to reach this like 3000 words? Or do we need to think it otherwise, think about it differently? So my uh, friend and, and uh, well, the sort of writing mentor who got me into this is Professor Dan Davis at Manchester. And he's written three books. And I know that oh, certainly he does take sabbaticals and just takes steps out and goes and does that. And lots of my friends were like, well, I can't, I don't know how you're juggling it. Maybe you should just go and, and do it. And so maybe it would have been better to have taken blocks of time of being a bit braver about saying to my line manager, can I take these blocks of time as sabbatical and take it off? Um, but there was something about the, the pace and the having to do it that meant I didn't ever have time to get uh, bogged down and worried about it. So I, because it was so like you have to do it i didn't there was no writer's block because there was no time for writer's block so i don't know it would be interesting to try it the other way where you have i have like a luxurious 
you know month in my calendar where I can just write but I'd be worried I'd just fritter it away no <laughs> no no but you know but but deadlines deadlines are extremely important I know I think that Terry, Terry Pratchett has a saying I love deadlines and the sounds they that they make when they pass by me <laughs> something <laughs> like this now a, another thing that I'm curious about because I also write Now, this is your field of research, your field of expertise, but sometimes during uh, writing during the work of a, of a book, you you get to a niche that you are not expert at. And now the question is, how much do I need to dive in and do research in order to elaborate my writing, my understanding? Should I add, uh, or in, in other words, should I add another page or another chapter? Or another section I started my book about artificial intelligence and I said okay I need to have a, 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 a small chapter about human intelligence because artificial intelligence basically wants to want to simulate human intelligence and I start reading about human intelligence just to have like 20 pages and it eventually it came out with 400 pages because <laughs> the subject was you so interesting so immense I, I couldn't summarize it in 20 pages so I had 400 pages so I sure that this thing also happened to you so what's your take about how much dive in into a side niche yeah so I just slight different answer to solve the thing I found the most challenging were the bits that I knew most about because I couldn't work out where to crop them. So the, the, the immunology chapter does run on a bit when I was much more strict on the ones where I, I knew less. The second thing that helped was I have access to experts in all of these fields because I work with them. So I could just send a chapter to somebody and say, have I missed anything on there? And the third, I, I don't know. I think I, 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 I went as far as I was interested. And then, then, then I could just pick out the funny and the interesting and the, the, the important. So I'm sure there are things I've missed and I'm sure for... people like I had friends who were like oh you didn't mention this passage and I was like no they have you seen Blackadder where he's writing the dictionary there's a there's a British uh, comedy from the 90s where he's writing a dictionary and at the end they say he's like oh do you want a sausage and he's like sausage because he's really angry because he's missed the word sausage and it, there was there was a bit of that when somebody's like oh you didn't say gonorrhea I was like no so yeah there there are lots of holes but I hopefully not enough that it all falls apart okay so with your permission last question and this is a, again also a great writing a great article 10 simple rules to becoming a principal investigator and one of the things that you write there is uh, let me just quote uh, uh, moving from doing someone else research, To getting other people to do yours being a PI is fundamentally different jobs to being a postdoc and it's not like a graduate student or a doctorate it's a postdoc and postdoc usually has his own research that just happen to be in the same environment and it's not an easy transition and then you list like 10 10 simple rules about pub, have ideas publish published papers and And many uh, many things as well and now many students and many postdocs that I know had very bad time switching from being a postdoc or even a successful postdoc to being a PI and the, I, I, I want to I want to just ask you about one thing the first rule which is have 
ideas. Now, what is, how do, we ha how do you have ideas? Because I thought that being a postdoc means that you need to work in part on your ideas as well. So could you please elaborate just on one thing because we don't have many time. Could you please elaborate on, on what you know about have ideas? So I think what I was trying to say is, and you're right, so the postdocs have to have ideas, but often it's within the context of a single project or they have ideas about how to move their, their single story on. You've kind of got to have a, a whole framework of ideas to support new people to, you know, some that which will go nowhere. Um, I, I think it's just, it's the engine on which our careers are, you know, it's, it's what we sell, isn't it? It's, you know, if we're a company, we're selling our, our ideas and the successful kind of development of those ideas. And I think without those, you can't run a group because that's your, that's your main job in the group is to come up with at least the initial idea. And it doesn't have to be right, but it has to be enough that somebody else can then go and build it further. So how do you get the idea? Where, where ideas come from? Where do good ideas come from? Yes. So for me, it's conferences uh, and conferences with time to step back and think uh, in between them or some space after the conferences. So I get, I, I get most of my ideas from talks rather than from papers, but other people get them from papers. I think you need to dedicate time uh, to thinking about things and to like, and, and to accept that, you can spend a whole morning and have nothing to show for it. But that's not a wasted morning. It's just that, that day you didn't have anything to show for it. So it is, it doesn't just happen. I think some, you have to put the time in and then you also have to leave the gaps in between. I think your sub, one subconscious does a lot of the heavy lifting, but it needs to have the kind of input in and then it grinds through it somehow and then stuff pops out the other end. So a, a range of different things. Uh, exercise helps me as well. I'm I'm having tomorrow on the show Professor Barbara Oakley, and she is the author of like the most views, a uh, massive open online course in the history, learning how to learn. And she heavily discussed, you know, the the difference between focused and diffused mode, and the importance of diffused mode in learning. Like this, like wasted morning is not wasted because mm. something is built. In your unconscious and finally you get it in the shower you get it in the conference you get this aha moment but this aha moment is built upon many many wasted mornings so uh, yeah. and, and, it, and it comes back to stephen king with the the writing things the same the right where he talks about writing with the door closed and then edit with the door open it's that same there is similarities in that creative versus editing kind of mindset in ideas as well i think so hopefully the two bits kind of feed into each other Professor John Tregoning, it was an extremely pleasure having you today. And it's, you, you are not just a colleague in, in the context of academia and science, you are also a colleague in the context of book writing. And let me, uh, let me please hope that this is not will be your last book and you will continue to publish science book for the audience, for the lay public. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's really enjoyable. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.